Our guest today is Ian Marcus Corbin. He's a scholar and a writer. He has studied politics, religion, and philosophy at Gordon College, Oxford University, Yale University, and Boston College. He focuses on how deep human values affect the formation and evolution of human communities. He's also a postdoc fellow at Harvard Medical School, where he co-directs the Human Network Initiative. He's also a senior fellow at a think tank called Capita. He's currently writing a book on human solidarity, and I can't wait to get into all of these topics. Thank you for joining us, Ian. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. So the first question I have for you is related to your research on solitary confinement. Your research on loneliness, which you know crystallizes when you're studying people in solitary confinement, I find very interesting. Can you tell us what happens to an individual's mind or the person's self while they are in solitary confinement? Yeah, it's wild. I really would encourage you or any of your listeners to look around and find some accounts from prisoners who've been in that situation or psychologists who study it. So solitary confinement was at an early stage, I want to say in the 19th century, but don't quote me on that. It was actually promoted by Quakers in Philadelphia as sort of humane way to deal with antisocial behavior. So they thought of humans as sort of fundamentally sort of solitary creatures, so that if you were sort of having trouble in society and not acting the way that you should, that the best thing to do to you would be to put you alone and let you kind of reset, right? Still yourself, reset, and then come back into society. So, you know, we can get into the distinction between, you know, solitude and isolation and loneliness. They're important distinctions. But in this case, it turns out that this anthropology really led us astray because it turns out that we're not fundamentally solitary creatures. We're fundamentally communal creatures. And that if you pull us out of these sort of feedback loops of intersubjectivity, being around other minds, other agents, other people, that our ability to hold a coherent sense of ourselves and a coherent sense of the world, sort of consistent, solid way, just evaporates. So the really garden variety kind of baseline experience of extended solitary confinement is that prisoners have trouble sort of regulating themselves, regulating their behavior. They have trouble focusing so they can decide to think about a certain thing and their mind goes wherever it wants. So they can decide to try to look at a thing and their mind goes wherever it wants, right? They just can't control themselves. So that's sort of the least of your troubles. That's what happens to basically everyone. But there's also a lot of cases that are more extreme where prisoners sort of lose their ability to tell the difference between themselves and their environment. They lose a sense of selfhood. They lose a sense of what's real and what's not. They start to see, you know, the wall vibrating in front of them. They hear voices. In some cases, they will kind of do arbitrary violence to themselves. And then if you ask them about it afterwards, why did you do that? They'll say, I didn't know it was me that I was hurting. Their sense of self in a world comes totally unraveled. And so for me, this was a kind of big aha moment because you know, I was very interested in you know, the role we play in each other's lives and each other's thinking and, and formation of values. And you know, I've been convinced for many years now that the modern individualistic framework is wrong in some serious ways. And so I came in kind of trying to figure out, you know, how we would articulate that wrongness, right? How do we really understand what we mean to each other and what we do for each other? 
And one point that I found really interesting was the topic of loneliness. Because we can say a lot of stuff in a medical context about how isolation is bad for us. Right? If you live entirely alone, that can sort of have adverse health impacts. But loneliness can too. And the two are not the same. So you can be, and you know we've known this for a long time, you can be devastatingly lonely living in a house full of family members. And you can live in a cabin in the woods, or you can live in a monastery in a cell by yourself and not be lonely. I had started this project of trying to figure out what loneliness is and why it can be devastating, right? And, you know, the kind of conventional social scientific definition that gets used by everyone since, I believe, the late 70s is a discrepancy model, where loneliness is a discrepancy between the kind of social life you would like to have and the one you have, right? And so that's helpful because that doesn't name a quantity of people you need in your life, which is good because sometimes you can be lonely with other people around you and you're not lonely by yourself or not lonely if you just have a spouse. But of course, like that's a very thin definition, right? Because there are all sorts of discrepancies in my social life right now. Like, you know, I wish I could hang out with Albert Camus. I can't. There's a real discrepancy, but I'm not as a result lonely. So anyway, trying to think through all this stuff, trying to think through what we mean for each other. And when I came across the literature on solitary confinement, something really clicked because I was like, oh my gosh, like we need each other just to maintain like something approaching a coherent sense of reality, right? And if you pull us out of sort of interrelation with one another, it just melts right in front of us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And interestingly, you know, what is described a minute ago as the garden variety impacts of solitary, the failure of self-regulation and the inability to focus are also two of the main hallmarks of just loneliness, the kind that you can experience, again, in a house full of family members. So that was sort of a big moment for me. I said, like, oh my gosh, like these intuitions that I had and these philosophers I've read for years talking about how interrelated we are and how we're the you know communal animal and all this like gosh it seems actually true <laughs> like it seems like it's actually borne out by you know just empirical research really interesting and I've just seen some surveys that show you know the increase in loneliness amongst adults particularly Gen Z I think one that I read, it said that more than three in five Americans are lonely, right? And 73% of heavy social media users say that they are very lonely. I heard a stat recently correlating like heavy political engagement with loneliness as well. <laughs> that like people who are really involved with politics tend to be super lonely. And I don't know which direction the causality runs. Right. I'm just wondering how, you know, your research gives you some insights about this moment that we're in with, you know, polarization and conflict and things like that. And, you know, I wonder, you know, you're a philosopher. You were observing events over the past couple of years. You know, I'm talking about the pandemic, the protest. You know, you, we had January 6th. You know, what did you learn about the human experience during these times? You did mention in a Washington Examiner piece that there's a deep discontentment with the modern world. So tell us more. Yeah. I mean, so there's a pretty perfect overlap between the period when I was doing the research that we're talking about here and, you know, Corona and a lot of the sort of social upheavals that we've been seeing. So I was reading sort of all of it together. It does look a lot like loneliness to me, a lot of these sort of polarization and the rage that we see. So, you know, after coming across this 
literature on solitary confinement. I ended up going back and looking at some literature on child development and how you know we give our babies and our children a sense of reality. I became just entirely convinced that, first of all, you can't develop a sense of a world on your own. You need to kind of absorb it through osmosis from your parents or your caregivers. And a world is not just a sense of factual reality that like right now I see a couple of brick buildings outside of my window and those are not going to sprout wings and fly. Probably they're not going to melt. Brick tends to be pretty stable. Like, so there's that, that's necessary for a world, but also, you know, every second when we walk into a room, we take a quick temperature of that room where we sort of intuitively sense like, okay, that person is potentially dangerous. That person is attractive. Like that thing looks unstable you know, we sort of take an agential reading of our environment, even before we take a factual reading, before we start to kind of register and cognize in a more explicit way, we're like, we already know what to run away from and what to move towards. And that's part of how we sort of build a world for our children. Like they constantly from a very young age, I want to say six months, they can read what it is that their parents hold in high esteem versus low esteem. And they actually will reflect that in their own behavior towards the objects. Right. So all the time as you're growing to human maturity, you're sort of living inside this world where you kind of have a pretty workable sense of like what is really important, what is ultimately valuable, what is my role to play, you know, what should I avoid, what must I pursue? I think like, you know, the uniquely human way of being in the world or being in reality, let's say, is to be in a world in this sense. But we can't build it alone and we also can't maintain it alone, right? If we become lonely, our ability to kind of make evaluative choices starts to wane. So, right, like focus, I mentioned before that in solitary confinement or in regular day-to-day loneliness, you know, people have a hard time focusing. They have a hard time regulating behavior. Well, both of those are built on a foundation of evaluation, right? Like the only reason I can select between the like crazy myriad of visual and auditory phenomena around me right now and decide to focus on this conversation because I think it's more important than the other stuff. That's the result of a whole understanding I have of what is important in the world, what's important for me. And so when you're lonely, your world starts to kind of come apart a little bit and you get scared and you kind of thrash around and you try to find ways to kind of make your world make sense again because it's just not a human way to live outside of that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I think that you know, lacking co-perceivers and co-actors to sort of firm up and help you develop your sense of reality, it starts to crumble. But also, I mean, being around people who think you're nuts (laughs) and who think you're wrong and have a totally different set of values and live in a totally different world in this sense can also really chip away at your sense of sanity and your sense of who you are. And I think we are in a spot right now where, look, there's always been disagreement and there's always been, you know, different communities with different worldviews living nearby each other. I think one of the big things, there are a couple of big things. One is that we are uniquely and constantly aware of that fact now. I think like the ubiquity of the sort of little computers that we all have in our pockets keep us hooked into like a huge, huge array of humans. As far as I know, the best estimate of the number of humans we are sort of built to be in relationship with and to be working with and interacting with is about 150. And having access to thousands and thousands and millions of people in our little pocket computer 
is incredibly disorienting, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you go online and you have all these people who sort of claiming their worldview, you know, very strenuously, and it makes you feel a little bit crazy for a second. You're like, oh, God, what if, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm crazy? And so there ends up being this sort of escalating arms race where I need to, like, find my tribe. We need to reassert very violently that we are correct and these other people are terrible and totally wrong. But it's not actually a triumphalistic move. Like, it's a defensive move. It's that I'm terrified because my world feels like it's sort of crumbling around me and I can't live as a human if my world crumbles, right? I see a lot of that right now. And I do think digital life is a big part of it. I think that if the internet were to get shut off today, you would not find yourself so concerned about like the crack up of America (laughs) in the coming weeks. It would really fade and recede because most of the time on a ground level, like we're not divided, we're not clashing in the way that we are if you look at the world through a sort of digital lens. So I do think that's a big part of what's going on now. But there's also other things. So when I watch some of the footage of January 6th and some of the, I don't know what to call them, protesters, insurgents who ended up in the Senate chambers, there's one of the things they did was they were praying and so I grew up, had a very strange upbringing in a sort of the son of two Pentecostal pastors in the North Shore of Boston, which is a strange place to be Pentecostal. And, you know, as soon as these people started praying in the Senate chambers, I recognized this sort of patois of it immediately. Right? It's like, well, Father God, we just come before you today. Like, it's like exactly the way people in my church prayed <laughs> when I was growing up. I was like, oh my God, like this isn't some like weird new confabulation. This is at least in some part like a culture that I'm familiar with. But I do think something's changed where when I'm growing up on the North Shore of Boston in this context, like we felt kind of embattled. We felt like outsiders and underdogs and like we were sort of living in the shadow of these giant institutions with incredible authority. And in some degree, we're scared of them, right? Like, we're scared of Harvard. We're scared of the New York Times. We're scared of the Atlantic. We wouldn't have challenged them. We wouldn't have, like, charged into the Senate. We had a counterculture, but I don't think we would have sort of tried to engage the dominant culture in open battle like that. So I do think something's happened to, you know, what was supposed to be the kind of mainstream system of truth and authority and morality that was supposed to be kind of like, I guess, like the default placeholder that could like keep all of these factions cooperating more or less. So, you know, if you study political philosophy, you know, after the, well, from the 70s onward, especially there's this philosopher, John Rawls, becomes incredibly influential. And he articulates a vision of liberalism that provides a sort of basically neutral public sphere where we all can sort of have debates as long as we're articulating our position in language that is accessible to everyone, right? So I wouldn't, in that system, go into public and say, like, you know, the Holy Spirit led me to propose this legislation, right? <laughs> like, I would be bound to articulate my preferences in language that everyone could accept, you know, and, and basically, we'd sort of all respect the, the findings of science, right? Like, there would be a kind of new, thin, but commonly acceptable public language and public reality that we could work with. And then you would kind of practice your thicker version of reality, in your church, your synagogue, whatever, your Boy Scout troop, your sports team. And so there's supposed to be this kind of like detente where like 
you know, we can cooperate on stuff that we understand together, do our little hocus pocus in private so that we feel like life is very meaningful. And that would be a stable system. And I do think something's happened since I was a child in a Pentecostal church in the North Shore of Boston, where that public reality is not seeming so credible to people anymore in lots of ways. And we can talk about why that might be. I think there are economic reasons. I think there's some really bad mishandling of authority by people at the New York Times and Harvard and the Atlantic. But yeah, we're at a spot now where, you know, people are really feeling the fact that their worldview clashes with those around them, they're feeling threatened by it. And they're also feeling kind of empowered to attack. And it's a tough period right now. And I, I don't think we've seen the worst of it. I don't think we've seen the last of it. I'll go on record and say that I think the next presidential contest is going to be nuts. <laughs> like, I don't think we're going to return to like Obama versus Romney anytime soon. I think it's going to stay a little bit crazy for a while until we get some of these issues sorted out somehow. Right, right. I think you make a distinction between loneliness and solitude. I think there's a way in which solitude is positive, whereas loneliness may not be. And I think when you say solitude, you mean sort of a moment of reflection and of trying to make sense of the world around you and the connections you have with others versus loneliness is a little different. What's the distinction and how is solitude positive versus loneliness negative? It's something I'm trying to work out as I'm writing this book and doing the work that I'm doing in the lab here. As the way I described it before, we're sort of inducted into a world in our upbringing. Those worlds are maintained through these sort of intersubjective feedback loops with other people who help us understand. And, you know, as we make evaluations, they help us to be confident in those and firm them up and maintain them. But of course, cultures change, people change. And that wouldn't happen if the only way of being in the world was to kind of live in these sort of tight feedback loops where you're affirming and being affirmed all the time. Sometimes we step away, right? And like poets and religious mystics and political visionaries, these people kind of step away for periods from this sort of deep, constant, intersubjective engagement right, this membership in a tight, coherent world. And they kind of go back to the well, almost, they kind of go back and look at things anew. And quite often, you know, you can have a situation where someone steps away, and they come back, and they're not trying to, you know, have a revolution or overthrow anything. But they're like, look, I've kind of re-understood Christianity, let's say, right, I have a new vision of it, I kind of got back to the roots of it, I understand how we've gone astray, and like, let's get back on the right path or with like liberal democracy or whatever, whatever world you're stepping in and out of. But that kind of intentional stepping away from a world for a period and like quieting yourself and kind of looking, trying to look anew at things is at least one important way that I would understand solitude where loneliness is feeling your world disintegrate around you. And it's typically not like a peaceful static sort of thing. It's typically sort of frenetic, right? Like, you're sort of dashing around online, like frantically, you're, you know, you're stuffing your face with food. You're like, <laughs> you're trying to feel better somehow. You're trying to restore some feeling of coherence and sanity. Whereas solitude is a more or less intentional thing where you kind of press pause, step away, quiet yourself and try to look at reality anew. That's really interesting. So what are the implications of this for pluralism, right? I mean, we seek to coexist with yeah. people amidst very deep divides. Yeah. And that's been the ongoing American experiment from the beginning. We've expanded and included more and more people who were 
at the margins and yeah. incorporated, you know, a broader sense of what we think of as being American. Now with what's going on, you mentioned the system sort of breaking down and there is this sense of loneliness not being the only thing that's creating these challenges, but loneliness being an important part of this. How do we go from that to fostering a more pluralistic society? People can't seem to get along and other groups and people and tribes kind of threaten other people's sense of existence and, and so on. I mean, A, if I knew offhand how to do this, you should make me president immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly how to do it. You know, I would say that like there are definitely cases in which coexistence you know, in the midst of diversity is extremely doable and can be a beautiful thing and go really well. So one thing that seems important to me is physical proximity, because the version that people present when they go digital is bullshit. It's nonsense. And like I said, it's a kind of amped up, hyper-confident version of their worldview, which is super alienating to encounter. Like, how are you so confident about that? Like, damn, like, am I like an idiot? You seem so sure of this other thing. If you sit down with a human, it's a much different story because we're piecing together these worldviews. And at a deep, deep level, most of us know that like, we're not entirely confident. We don't know whether this account of reality that we're working inside of, we don't know for sure that it's actually true. We have a lot of reasons to think it is. And if you can interact with one other person, like for some extended bit, you know, maybe some whiskey, I don't know, maybe some music to listen to. Some Scott Punk, maybe? Some Scott Punk, hopefully not. You can be a little more honest, and you can let go a little bit of kind of this, like, white-knuckle grip on certainty. And you can kind of see that, like, yeah, okay, you can live next to me with your view. I'm okay, I'm not threatened, you don't destroy me. So one thing is physical proximity. I think it's super important. It's something that we're seeing less and less of. We're seeing more people kind of like building these little compartments, right? Like there are certain zip codes where like people vote a certain way and have a certain kind of education and a certain amount of money. And it's a big kind of pulling apart of different groups, which is difficult and dangerous. I mean, I think that, you know, a very confident person or a very confident group can just live next to people who don't agree with them and they're fine, right? And so we should be more confident. <laughs> like... The different groups that are at war right now should relax and they believe and work inside the world that they understand and speak kindly and like humans to other people because everyone is sort of trying their damnedest and not being entirely successful. I think I was super threatened growing up. It's in a weird context. I had this really strong militant worldview that was thought absurd by everyone around me. And it was terrifying and very difficult. Now I've studied philosophy for like 20 years and I'm not scared of anyone in that way anymore because I'm very confident in what I understand and I've really tried to think through alternatives. And so I think someone who's done that kind of work like can live very amicably alongside difference. And not everyone can or should study philosophy for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> like, God help us. But I think if we could find ways to kind of do some of that solitude and do some of that kind of going back to the well and like letting go and kind of looking at a fresh at reality, I think it would make us all stronger and healthier. So perhaps a little paradoxically, if Americans could get a little better at engaging in genuine solitude and do it a little more often, I think a couple things would happen. So there'd be ways to kind of renew and expand 
the different worldviews that we live inside, right? Like make them more hospitable to larger swaths of reality and human reality. And also, I mean, I think that experience of kind of pausing and looking at things afresh for yourself, like you hopefully probably you'll walk away with some wisdom and some convictions about how to live in the world. But you'll also have a sense that the way you translate an experience of reality into a system of value and action is imperfect, right? Like there's no way that if you try to say, okay, like I sat in a meadow for two hours <laughs> and I watched the sunset and like, here's how we have to vote in the midterms. Like there's no way that you can honestly believe that there's like a really direct infallible correlation between like what the world is like and like how we should act here and now. So it can tend to sort of make you a little humbler and a little more open to people who disagree. So I don't think that any of that is super helpful. <laughs> I think advising Americans to engage in lots of solitude, maybe a couple people would do it. Solitude is always difficult. Can you read back for medieval monks? Like it's hard. It's hard to live in reality and to be alone. It's hard not to live in your head and just sort of run yourself in circles there. Like it's a human struggle. You know, Steve Jobs didn't invent this struggle. He did make some tools for avoiding solitude that are really powerful and appealing. So that is a problem. So, I mean, unplug from your computer, try to talk to people who are real people, like be alone sometimes. I don't know. Right. Now, what role do you think aesthetics would play in, in this? I think you've read about this appreciation for art, music, and yeah. how that might translate into our appreciation for one another's differences that might foster some kind of a human solidarity. That's interesting. That's a great question. So, you know, I think great art tends to be engaging in something that would approach like world making, where if you look at a great painting or watch a great film or listen to a great piece of music, it contains within it, like not exhaustive, but like substantial picture of like, what is reality like? What is truly important? How should we live in it? So, you know, these works are, I think, embodying, and this is controversial and I'd be happy to defend it, but I, I think great works of art are embodying pictures of the world in this way. And I do think there's something disarming about seeing a worldview put into practice as opposed to having someone yell at you about it. <laughs> For instance, like my favorite book, which I talk about almost every time I speak anywhere, is The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And the book is written as a defense of Christianity as a way of life against like liberal, atheist, like scientistic or modernizers. But Dostoevsky was brilliant, brilliant philosophical mind, didn't write an argument to try to defend Christianity. Instead, he took different ways of thinking like atheism or sort of hedonistic sensualism or Christianity, and he put them in the person of like a different brother in this family, the Karamazov family. And he tried to, I think, be quite honest about how he saw them playing out. Right. Like, what does it look like to live as an atheist in the world? What does it look like to live as a Christian or as a hedonist in the world? And there's something where, like, if he just kind of argued at you about atheism, argued at you about Christianity, you'd be like, OK, that's a pretty tight argument. I don't know. But like he thought, like, you put it in pictures right, of a human walking down the street. Like there's something about that that's differently appealing and that can like override some kind of dug in philosophical positions that we might occupy. Because sensuality and like color and sound and all this stuff, it's so immediately appealing, right? It's hard to fake it. Like if you take 
a really evil, corrupt worldview, let's say, you know, national socialism, and you try to make aesthetics out of it, it can be kind of shallowly appealing, right? And there's some, some art we could talk about from Germany in the 30s that like first glance is, oof, like that's quite striking. But you look closer and like the corruption is visible, right? Like the lie of it is visible. The fact that it's falsifying what it's like to be a human and not telling us the truth about ourselves, like I think is like visible on the screen. So actually Solzhenitsyn says this, I think in his speech at Harvard, it's really hard to lie in art. On a gut level, you can see through stuff in a way that if you put it in philosophical argument form, it's much easier to be shifty and sneaky and to fool people. That's fascinating. Now, what did your experience in a scout punk band in the 90s teach you about community and tribes? <laughs> it was a very funny thing to be asked about. Yes, yeah, so I wrote a piece about my teenage scout punk band in uh, Plow Journal which was a lot of fun. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> so I said I was raised a Pentecostal pastor's kid. I fell in with some other Christian kids in my high school, and we all liked punk rock. And so we had a band together that was like punk rock, but also we were Christians. And I spent maybe like three years pretty constantly like rehearsing and playing shows in like basements and clubs and church basements and little bars. I wrote this piece talking about just sort of how tight and enveloping that kind of a scene is. And, you know, so you mentioned before, I believe, that Gen Z Americans are particularly lonely. It's an interesting fact that young people are actually the loneliest demographic. So I think it's like between ages of 18 and 21 is the kind of trough of deepest loneliness. And it's not when you're old. And when in a lot of cases, you have far fewer contacts, far fewer interactions and relationships. It's actually when you're younger, and you have, statistically speaking, a much bigger social network than an old person would. You tend to be deeply lonely. And I think that's because, you know, adolescence is a period when you're stepping away from your parents' world that they've constructed for you and kind of welcomed you into. And you're having to kind of reevaluate and you're like, it's scary, right? And your sense of self and sense of world are kind of really up for debate. And so I think it's no accident at that time period, music tends to matter a lot to people. Right. I don't know if you have favorite music that you really loved when you were 18 or 19, but I still do. And I think a lot of people do. There's a moment in your life where like music gets inside you. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's that moment when you're trying to kind of build your own picture of the world as an adult. And so for me, I sort of welcomed into this underground music scene. And it was incredibly wonderful. There's a whole everything for you. There's a way of dressing. There's a way of thinking. There's a way of talking. There's a common set of enemies. You had your tribe, your community. <laughs> yeah, it just had a tribe. And you could walk into a club, like in some foreign city or some city that you'd not been to before. And you look around, you're like, okay, like, here I am. All the signifiers are here. We see the way they dress, like everything whew, feels comfortable to me. Then you have, it's not just like a social club where you dress the same and have similar attitudes, which would be great anyway. But then there's music that's like very aggressive and you, know, you have ways of dancing to it where you're thrashing around in this like sweaty throng. And there really is like something Dionysian where you like lose your sense of identity for a little bit, right? And you just become immersed in this larger whole and it's totalizing and it's beautiful to be part of for a couple of years. I think if you were still part of it at 40, 50, and 60, and you still lived as part of some big totalizing tribe, that wouldn't be so good. <laughs> I think it's something we go through and we should be grateful for it, but... Why not, though? I mean, you have a, it's a sense of belonging and you're part of this community that accepts you and you accept them and you go through your rituals and 
things like that. It's great. And maybe if you lived on like punk rock Island and you had no exposure <laughs> to anyone else and you didn't have to deal with any other ways of being, you maybe could make a life that way. But you know, like we despised, this was a long time ago, the mainstream hip thing was to wear hemp necklaces and Birkenstocks and to listen to Dave Matthews band and like maybe fish or something. And we just despised those people. <laughs> like They were so stupid to us and so shallow and pathetic. And I think like that really strong sense of us, that sort of totalizing sense, like it tends to make enemies of other people. And I was never violent or anything, but like, I think you should, as you grow, come to see the value in Dave Matthews. <laughs> like he's not someone that I would go see in concert voluntarily necessarily, but like, you know, he's got some good songs and there's something good about that kind of an ethos that he's embodying and life is broad and big and complicated and like your sympathy should expand over time and that's good and beautiful and I, I would say is I don't have many periods of three hours on a Friday night where I feel that integrated and that part of something maybe a bit sometimes but like I would say I feel more at home in the world overall now than I did when I was part of that smaller sub community because I've been around a lot and seen the value of a lot of different things and you know, I think I'm able to live with more overall equanimity than, you know, 19-year-old Ian. Right. We had a previous guest, Tara Burton. Love Tara. Yeah, we talked about her book, Strange Rights. And, you know, she talks about sort of the fandom culture that sort of informs new secularized religions that are proliferating in the digital age, you know, giving people an opportunity to extend the, the types of adolescent tribes that you write about. So I find that very interesting. I don't know if, whether you experienced some of that. Oh, that like there's just more of that extending further into adulthood mm -hmm. now? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is that, does politics count in there? Yeah, perhaps. I think maybe, okay, so if you live in the real world around people and you haven't just selected them because they have exactly the same taste and outlook as you and you have to interact with others and people in your family who aren't like you and all that, then it's hard to maintain that kind of a integral totalizing identity, I think if you're being honest and mature about it. But if a lot of your life is online, then you can find like a subreddit that like is that, that is kind of totalizing and despises people who aren't part of that group. I think maybe, yeah, I think like politics is that for a lot of people online. I have a lot of sympathy with a lot of the concerns and desires of the left in America right now. But the online left is crazy. Like, it's like a punk rock scene or something. Where it just absolutely owns people's identities. And I'm sure I don't have as much exposure to, like, Talking Points USA conservative kids. But I suspect something similar is probably going on there as well. And so I think the internet does facilitate the extension of that kind of stuff into adult life. But I bet Tara had a lot of smarter things to say about it than I do. <laughs> yeah. We also had a conversation with a, another guest, Robert Talese, who I reference a lot. He's a political philosopher at Vanderbilt. And his book, Overdoing Democracy, is a really good one. And in that, he says, look, we are so saturated with politics. It has penetrated into every sphere of our lives. And we're having a hard time separating ourselves from it. It's almost a lifestyle, how we identify as whether red or blue. And the best way forward is to figure out ways in which we can do things that do not reflect our politics. 
And if you think about it, you know, you realize how difficult that is where everything you do, whether it's, you know, you go to the gym, you know, there's some politics there. Whether you get coffee at a Starbucks versus a Dunkin' Donut, people can interpret some politics in there. What can we find to do that can separate us from our politics and just be with people as people? That's what you know, Robert Talese talks about. It's very interesting stuff. I mean, it's weird because like the kind of saturated political person that I was talking about and that you're talking about. I know some people like that and it sucks. <laughs> you feel like I'm not just talking to a person. I'm talking to like a style or like a group right now or a tribe. And that's not that good. But I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It doesn't even happen to me that often. I feel like most people are sane in their lives when you interact with them. And they're like when they're like picking up a coffee or like taking their kids to school or something like, aren't they right? Like has politics really taken over that much, do you think? Yeah, I mean, if we think about ways in which it's on our TV screens every day, it's on our social media feeds every day, people get really worked up about it. I don't know. I, I think there's an argument there. Online, certainly. A lot of these normal sane people I'm talking about and bumping into, like, they pull out their phone or their computer, they turn crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then they read and then they see other people being crazy and they're like, oh, damn it. Like, the other people are totally crazy. And so they become afraid of their fellow Americans and they kind of shrink back in mistrust. I certainly do see a link between the solitude that you talk about and the Robert Talese point about stepping away from some things. And, you know, if you're volunteering with some a group of people to teach kids how to read at a public library, it's a practice that may have nothing to do with one's political beliefs and things like of that nature. Yeah. You know, it's funny because it sounds a little bit like mushy and unserious but like, you know, the dialogue around mindfulness and like being present does seem to me to be important and related here. I don't know if people who talk about mindfulness are present really all the time, but I think any experience of being really present with another human or another phenomenon or an environment or a setting or almost anything like has a really positive effect. I wonder what's going on that like we talk about mindfulness all the time now. And everyone goes to yoga and people meditate and see therapists, but we don't seem to be getting more settled in ourselves. <laughs> you know, like if anything, we seem to be getting more frenetic and divided and distracted and stupid. So tell us, what is the Human Network Initiative? What is a philosopher doing at a medical school? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. So I'm still doing philosophy for the most part. I'm doing it in dialogue with neuroscientists who I work with and neurologists and some social scientists. And it's pretty wonderful. It's hard because oftentimes you find that like you're using words differently and we have not agreed upon a set of definitions. And so we're all just talking past each other, but if you can do the work of kind of understanding and getting on the same page. I think it's incredibly rich and wonderful. And, you know, right now, like philosophy is just plummeting as, a college major and therefore teaching philosophy is plummeting as a profession. It makes me sad as a philosophy major myself. It's pretty bad. And we could talk about why that's happened, but I think that we have a ton to add to you know, different ways of doing research and understanding the world. I think like having a philosopher in the room when you're designing research questions, like can be really helpful. And I've been having a great time here. So I'm in the neurology department and the lab that I'm part of works on networks, like human networks of people around you and their impact on your brain health. So 
specifically in relation to stroke. And the Human Network Initiative is just a little project that we've stood up here to try to convene more and more interdisciplinary conversations and to try to bring in broader considerations when we're looking at patients, for instance, and then also like from our work on the ground with patients and with brains to try to understand much broader things in turn. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to do in a neurology department. Great. Can you define for us what human solidarity is? No, not super well. (laughs) I hope to. You know, I would say that it's something like being able to use the first person plural, being able to understand ourselves as a we or an us. Of course, that's going to be easier. You're going to feel more affinity with people who are very much like you and share the world that you live in and can help you to live well inside it. So Aristotle, a philosopher who writes very famously about friendship and who's influenced me a lot, he says that we also bear some species of friendship towards everyone in our species. It's not the richest, most integral kind, but something. I think that's something we can and should you know, try to water in ourselves. I am a little concerned about where things are going on the large kind of societal level in America right now. But, you know, I'm incredibly optimistic about the chances of any two people put in a room together to come to love and understand each other, even if they think differently about a lot of things. You know, I think we can all understand there's a pretty broad spate of basic stuff, loving your children, wanting well for them, you know, mourning when you lose someone wanting to be confident, wanting to be successful. There's a lot of stuff that we all share as human beings. And I think there are ways to sort of cultivate that, remind ourselves of that, and like try to live more in that reality than in these sort of like tightly sealed little communities where I really only can understand and love the kind of little tribe that's gathered around me. Now, a question I tend to ask all my guests, it's about optimism. So it's, you know, whether you're optimistic about our ability to foster solidarity and pluralism. You mentioned initially that you're very concerned and you think things are going to get worse. So maybe that's sort of you saying that you're pessimistic. Well, I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think that a lot of these problems had been there for a while, but got sort of temporarily paused or papered over. You know, in the post-war period, we had a period of great social mobility and growth where you could be like, all right, everybody calm down for a minute. Like, we're all going to get rich here, and our kids are going to be richer than us, right? And that's exciting, and that can cover over a multitude of sins. For lots of reasons, that has ceased being super realistic for the broad mass of Americans, right? Like, it's become much more concentrated through a number of political decisions that have been made and changes in technology and how the economy works. Another one is having common enemies. So, you know, we had the Soviet Union for a long time to be united against, and again, that can cover over a multitude of sins. And then, you know, we kind of took care of that. And then there was a little interregnum period. And then we had 9-11. And there was something, gosh, I hate to say it, there was something almost gleeful about the way some people greeted that event and greeted the sort of America having a mission again, having a common mission that we could all share. And now that has seemed to kind of peter out a little bit. And, you know, maybe a new enemy will jump up. And then we'll all kind of be able to hold hands for a few years and you know yell at the enemy. So that could happen. For a minute, I thought the, the pandemic, uh, the emergence of the coronavirus might have been the, the enemy there. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, man. It tried maybe, but we have managed to find all kinds of domestic enemies in the midst of this battle. So, yeah, you know, I know their enemy could come up. I think some crazy things happened in politics in the past five years. And I think like... I didn't see Donald Trump coming. 
I did not see Bernie coming, right? I didn't see these disruptive figures coming. I think our political class is pretty hollowed out in large part. Like I could name names. Like we just have some really useless human beings, like who you would not talk to at a party who are like in charge of major parts of our country. They're terrible. And I think that it's possible that a politician could come on the scene who could be transformative. You know, I can't know for sure, but I think it's possible. I would love to see artists trying to step away from the fray a little bit and kind of go back to the well in that way I was talking about and see if they can picture, can catch a new vision for what America could mean and kind of come back and talk to us about that. So, I mean, I think anything's possible, but I don't see right now the resources sort of amassing to kind of get us back on stable footing. So getting back to the well, that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Ian. It's been great talking to you. I hope we get to talk again. Thanks, man. A lot of fun. Be well. All right.